From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. While Democrats present damning evidence against Trump in his second impeachment trial, will it matter to a Republican Party following its base far to the right? Today we have to stand up for our democracy and ensure we remain a country governed by the people, for the people, by telling Donald Trump and people all across this country and all across the world that his crimes will not and cannot stand. And in her bid to head Biden's Office of Management and Budget, the controversial neoliberal Neera Tandon faces Bernie Sanders. Also, economist Richard Wolf on what's happening on the real streets where we live, not on Wall Street. What you want if you're a big business person who buys politicians uh, like Lindsey Graham uh, every day, is you want the uh, minimum wage people to be set against little businesses. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for February 12th, 2021. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the members of Congress tasked with providing evidence for the impeachment of former President Donald Trump presented this week gripping video images, some seen by the public for the first time, as well as police radio audio, photographs, and recreations of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, the attack by white supremacists, militia groups, QAnon conspiracy theorists, and Trump MAGA supporters, left at least five people dead that day, more dead in the days that followed, dozens injured, and the United States changed forever in how it is viewed at home and abroad. During two days of meticulous presentation, by the prosecution led by Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, members of the House of Representatives detailed how Trump primed his followers for months with the big lie that the election was stolen from him before the election had even occurred. The lie continued during the election and afterward, leading up to January 6th, when Trump invited his followers to rally in D.C. when he knew Congress would be meeting to officially certify the election. Despite damning evidence, Beltway pundits still doubt that 17 Republicans will vote with Democrats to convict Trump. Nevertheless, on Thursday, managers closed their case with the powerful message that if Trump is not held accountable, he and the far-right movement he is encouraging will continue to foment violence here in D.C. and around the country. This is Representative Jamie Raskin. Why did President Trump not tell his supporters to stop the attack on the Capitol as soon as he learned of it? Why did President Trump do nothing to stop the attack for at least two hours after the attack began? As our constitutional commander-in-chief, why did he do nothing to send help to our overwhelmed and besieged law enforcement officers for at least two hours on January 16th after the attack began? On January 6th, why did President Trump not at any point that day condemn the violent insurrection and the insurrectionists. While Trump's incitement of a mob is being considered on Capitol Hill, 
His failure to manage the COVID-19 pandemic is the subject of a new Lancet study that says Trump's mishandling of the crisis atop the country's already decimated public health structure has cost tens of thousands of lives. Instead of galvanizing the U.S. public to fight the pandemic, the report states, quote, President Trump publicly dismissed its threat despite privately acknowledging it, discouraged action as infection spread, and eschewed international cooperation. His refusal to develop a national strategy worsened shortages of personal protective equipment and diagnostic tests, end quote. The panel, the Lancet Commission on Public Policy and Health in the Trump era, recommends Medicare for All, which would provide comprehensive coverage for all Americans. As of Friday morning, more than 475,000 Americans had died of COVID-19. Also on Thursday, the Biden administration announced that it had purchased an additional 200,000 doses of vaccine to vaccinate every American adult by the end of the summer. Biden spoke Thursday to staff at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. When I became president three weeks ago, America had no plan to vaccinate most of the country. It was a big mess. It's going to take time to fix, to be blunt with you. We started on day one. We won't have everything fixed for a while, but we're going to fix it. Meanwhile, amid the pandemic, more Americans continue to lose their jobs. More than 1.1 million people made new claims for all types of unemployment benefits for the week ending February 6th. The subject of unemployment benefits and proposed increases in the minimum wage were raised at the nomination hearing for Neera Tandon, Biden's controversial nominee to head the Office of Management and Budget. More from the Tandon hearing later in the show. In environmental news, rescuers are still searching for up to 200 people missing after a glacier broke in the Himalayas in northern India on Sunday, crashing into area rivers with ice and mud that completely demolished two major dam projects, killing the project's workers, and wiping out rural mountain villages. Video from those in the area captured the start of the avalanche. Scientists warned the government of Narendra Modi that these types of dams should not be constructed so close to glaciers or directly on tributaries to the Ganges River. Here in North America, a coalition of climate groups ramped up their fight this week to stop the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline. A new campaign called Stop the Money Pipeline puts pressure on financial institutions including Bank of America, Citibank, TD Bank, and the Royal Bank of Canada funding the Tar Sands Project. And a group of young Americans is planning to take a climate lawsuit to the Supreme Court after it was rejected for a second time by the Ninth Circuit U.S. Federal Appeals Court. The lawsuit, Juliana v. United States, argues that the federal government is fueling the climate crisis and is violating the plaintiff's constitutional rights to life, liberty, property, public trust, and equal protection under the law. 
Here in the D.C. area, activists are also pressing for cleaner energy solutions. Chantal James has the latest. With the fifth power plant in the Brandywine community planned, Friends of the Earth Prince George's and Clean Air Prince George's are organizing a protest on Valentine's Day to demand that the Prince George's County Council pass legislation banning the construction of future power plants in the county. We spoke with organizer Carol Henry Alexander, longtime community activist and environmental justice advocate, on the issues at stake and this weekend's action. There are two coal power plants in Brandywine, and uh, there have been efforts at legislation here in Maryland to shut down all coal power plants in Maryland within the next, I think, two years. And so the power plants are being changed from coal to a natural gas. And so what the wreckage that they leave behind from being coal-powered plants essentially is a community that has been breathing the air for the last 25 or 30 years with particulates of fossil fuel um, and we have just the most horrendous incidents of diseases in our community that come from that kind of air pollution like COPD and asthma and our, our children have a disproportionate amount of um, hospital visits for asthma and also heart disease in our community. So that's one of the things that, um, you know, we really are fighting for is the cleanup. Now that they're gone, it's like what they take, they just go away or do they have to do cleanup? In my personal opinion, the community really deserves reparations in terms of health care availability for people who have suffered because of the environmental racism and injustice in the area. The event will include testimony from those impacted by environmental racism, as well as direct action. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. More information about the event is at No Love for Polluters, No New Power Plants in Prince George's County on Facebook, or you can go to friendsoftheearth.org. And Lydia Curtis has the latest in the case we are following of Kwamina Okran, shot to death by Gaithersburg, Maryland police in January. Melody Cooper mother of 24-year-old Kwamina Okran, who was shot and killed by Gaithersburg police on January 8, 2021, testified Tuesday in front of the Maryland Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee. Her testimony was in support of increased police transparency and the passage of Anton's Law, named after Anton Black, a 19-year-old man who died in September 2019 in police custody on Maryland's eastern shore. Ms. Cooper is seeking justice in the murder of her son, who was unarmed when plainclothes police without body cameras shot him multiple times, allegedly because someone said he had a gun. Anton's law 
would require officers to wear functioning body cameras, as well as the timely release of police and coroner's reports, among other improvements in communication with victims' families and the general public. The ACLU and the Silver Spring Justice Coalition are working with Ms. Cooper in her quest for justice. To support this movement, reach out on Twitter at Silver Coalition for the latest updates or email them at silverspringjustice at gmail.com. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. The Gaithersburg Police Department identified officers involved in the shooting as Willie Delgado, Larby Dacuni, James Doyle, and Kyle Kuhn. All four men are on paid administrative leave. And finally, in culture and media, the Department of Justice announced Wednesday its intention to appeal a British judge's rejection of the U.S. attempt to extradite WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange to face charges under the U.S. Espionage Act, even though Assange is not a U.S. citizen. He is being charged for revealing U.S. war crimes during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. In India, law enforcement raided and closed the offices of NewsClick, a progressive website that is covering the massive uprising by Indian farmers. According to the National Herald India, homes of the owner and senior staff were also raided. The Delhi Union of Journalists said in a statement that the raids are meant to, quote, intimidate and browbeat independent and critical voices that disagree with the government on contemporary issues, end quote. And finally, we are celebrating the life of Mary Wilson, one of the original members of the Motown female group, The Supremes. She died Monday at the age of 76. And we celebrate the life of former Chicago Teachers Union President Karen Lewis, who lost her seven-year battle with brain cancer on Monday. The union said in its statement that Lewis, quote, bowed to no one and gave strength to tens of thousands of Chicago teacher union educators who followed her lead and who live by her principles to this day, end quote. Under Lewis's leadership, Chicago teachers in 2012 staged their first strike in 25 years and created a movement that created alliances between teachers, parents, and community organizations to defend public schools and defend public school students from the ravages of privatization and corporate reform promoted by both the Democratic and Republican parties. Rest in power, Karen Lewis. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I need love, love to ease my mind. I need to find, find someone to call mine. But mama said, can't hurry, love. No, you just have to wait. She said, love don't come. The Biden administration is sometimes called the Obama Administration 3.0, but 
Maybe it could be called the Hillary Clinton administration that never was, or the Bill Clinton administration 3.0. I think the specter of a ghost presidency was in full effect this week. Longtime Clinton partisan Neera Tannen, president of the Center for American Progress, known for her vicious social media attacks on progressives, was grilled Wednesday in her Senate nomination hearing to head Biden's Office of Management and Budget. Here is Bernie Sanders at the beginning of the hearing. Your attacks were not just made against Republicans. There were vicious attacks made against progressives, uh, people who I have worked with, me personally. So as you come before this committee to assume a very important role in the United States government uh, at a time when we need serious work on serious issues and not personal attacks on anybody, whether they're on the left or the right, can you reflect a little bit about some of your decisions and the personal statements that you have made in recent years? Yes, Senator, I really appreciate that question, and I recognize that my language and my uh, expressions on social media, you know, um, cause hurt to people. And I feel badly about that. And I really regret it. And I recognize this, it's really important for me to demonstrate that I can work with others. And I look forward to taking that burden. And I apologize to people on either the left or right who are hurt by what I've said. Okay, as you know, it's not a question of being hurt. We're all big boys. And I don't see too many girls here, but big boys. Uh, who get attacked all the time. But it's important that we make the attacks expressing our differences on policy and that we don't need to make personal attacks no matter what view somebody may hold. So can we assume that as the director of the OMB, we're going to see a different approach if you are uh, appointed than you have uh, taken at the cap? Absolutely. And I would say, you know, social media does lead to too many personal comments and my approach will be radically different. Thank you. So Tandon's hearing was held on the second day of Donald Trump's impeachment trial, which included more damning video proof that Trump incited the insurrection on January 6th with a big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him and was illegitimate. But throughout this process, Democrats like Tandon and corporate media friendly to them of course, have not noted their own hypocrisy in spreading the big lie that they engaged in throughout Trump's presidency, saying that the 2016 election was not legitimate, saying that Russian interference won the 2016 election for Trump, that there was collusion between Trump and Russia, and that Trump was a Putin puppet. Perhaps the height of this corporate Democrat lunacy was embodied in the near attendant tweet when she dubbed the uber Cold War hawk Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch. Now, you know I'm not a supporter or a defender of Trump or of the mob that attacked Congress on January 6th, but I am a supporter of truth. And for me, there is a direct line between the big lie that Democrats and liberal corporate media have spread over the past four years and the alienation of so many Trump supporters tired of being lied to to their faces and talked down to as if they are stupid or deplorable. There's a straight line between the Democrats' big lie and the ability of a vindicated Trump to appear legitimate to his supporters in telling them his own big lie four years later. Of course, supported by the rise of a new far-right, well-funded media outlets, even farther right than Fox, all of which are now in legal peril for spreading Trump's big lie before, during, and after November's election. So joining me to give us some insights into Neera Tandon, impeachment, lies, and videotape is Jacqueline Lukman, 
co-editor-in-chief of Lukeman Nation on Facebook Live and YouTube, and co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Sputnik Radio. Welcome back to the show, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad you could join me. So, Jackie, I'm not a big Twitter person and only heard about the vitriol and viciousness of Neera Tandon uh, toward Bernie Sanders, his movement, and the left in general. A lot of us really aren't on Twitter. So give us a sense of that world and how important it was. How important is that to what's happened in Washington? Twitter seems to have been the go-to place for politicos and pundits to weigh in on whatever's going on in politics outside of their regular outlets. You know, we have all of the media uh, talking heads adding additional commentary on topics on Twitter, and people like Neera Tandon were responding to the online progressive discourse on her Twitter feed. She was just as prolific in Twitter as the the most passionate Sanders supporter was. So it was really weird to see her go back and forth the way she did with a lot of folks who supported Bernie Sanders' policies. And the vitriol that she had for uh, for people was pretty, it was pretty epic. But I have to say, it wasn't worse than people like Joy Reid, honestly. <laughs> because, right, right, right. Right, I mean, it was that they were all equally hateful of Bernie Sanders and Sanders supporters. So I just want to make it clear that Neera Tandon was not like, you know, some exceptional case of hatred of progressives. No, she was just, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe the highest ranking one on Twitter, I guess you could say. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have another conversation about, I kind of get the feeling sometimes when I happen to watch Joanne Reed that she's basically being boosted by the Hillary Clinton crew because even months after the height of that kind of controversy she she still gets in her digs about Russia and it's like she won't let it go so it makes sense that you mention her in this context so anyway so as you heard during the nomination hearing you know Sanders did mention Tandon's online behavior at the start and you know she expressed regret and repeated her regret throughout the hearing, even though I don't think it really sounded sincere. And of course, we know that she scrubbed at least 1000 tweets from her account. But what was your reaction to the questioning she received about her role at the Center for American Progress and raking in millions from corporations, Wall Street and uh, shilling for foreign countries like the UAE or the apartheid state of Israel? or in general for acting as a lobbyist, lobbying arm to advance U.S. basically imperialist policy? I mean, you know, Neera Tandon is trying to get that job at the (laughs) You know, so of course she's going to say the requisite mea culpas and, you know, I regret what I said. You know, even though she did respond to some of the questioning, uh, I think it was uh, Rob Portman, the Republican uh, from Ohio, it was either Portman or the or the, or the uh, Republican from Louisiana, uh, Kennedy, who pressed her on whether she meant the things that she tweeted in. And she said, well, I, I'm sure I, I, I meant them. Obviously, I meant them, but I do regret them. That right there, I think, is the encapsulation of Neera Tandon's attitude 
toward the things that she said, the things that she did. I mean, because we're, we're not just talking about tweets here. We're talking about a woman who assaulted a former journalist because he asked a question of Hillary Clinton in an interview that was supposed to be uh, an easy interview about the Iraq war, right? So, I mean, if, if, anybody, if anybody had done that, anybody else had done that, they wouldn't be able to have a job in politics. But because it was Neera Tandon and Hillary Clinton pretty much made her, as Neera Tandon's mother said in an interview, I think, she was allowed to get away with that. So Tandon and the folks at the Center for American Progress understand their role as the vanguard of neoliberalism. They are the think tank for neoliberalism now, having taken over from the defunct Democratic Leadership Council. The original Democratic think tank that came up with third way politics that uh, orchestrated Bill Clinton's... Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are the beneficiaries of that neoliberal legacy. So I don't think that she is sincere. She wasn't sincere in any of the so-called regret that she had. She knows that even though she allegedly made this uh, deal to say that she accepts you know, some of Sanders' policies uh, for, you know, raising the minimum wage to $15 and not touching Social Security. We know that these are things that Tandon has been opposed to and the Democratic Party has been opposed to before now. And certainly the corporate backers of the Center for American Progress are also opposed to those things. So there's really no reason for us to believe that Tandon is all of a sudden going to change her entire professional ideology. She was never a progressive. It was just something that she and other liberals and neoliberals called themselves to try to appeal to actual progressives. But it didn't work because people were opposed to their policies. Well, finally, you know, I guess I thought that the fact that Sanders or none of the other senators brought up the whole foreign policy points in terms of the funding from foreign countries points to the one thing that they all agree on and won't touch. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and there is a reason that Sanders and the Democrats and the Republicans will never bring up any kind of foreign policy in any of these hearings because all of them are imperialists, every single one of them, Bernie Sanders included, all of the so-called progressives included. So they're not going to ask Neera Tandon any questions about how do you feel about the way the U.S. Uh, sees Juan Guaido in, in terms of Venezuela because they all believe the same thing, that Nicolas Maduro is not the legitimate leader of Venezuela and that Juan Guaido is, even though that is a blatant lie. They're not going to ask Tandon about you know whether she should support or whether she does support Jovenel uh, Moise in Haiti because she believes that he is a legitimate leader in Haiti even though the people have never wanted him he was installed under curious circumstances so US imperialism they're all anti-China they're all anti-Russia they all have the same position right well I didn't realize that the Center for American Progress that it was created as a run up to Hillary Clinton becoming president 
and so that they could develop the policies, develop the foreign relationships, develop the the infrastructure of donors from corporations and Wall Street to basically have all these things in place as a almost as a domestic lobbying operation for Clinton. <laughs> and that makes so much sense. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, the right wing is calling the impeachment, you know, political theater, you know, <laughs> but I thought that nomination hearing was also very interesting p- political theater that really tells us a lot about where things stand in Washington, both in terms of the business as usual and also the crisis. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that, you know, as you stated in your opening, I hate to agree with this fascist mob that stormed the Capitol uh, on January 6th and not, you know, for any ideological reasons. That's the fact that they stormed the Capitol is not my concern. But the reasons they did it You know, this election wasn't stolen. I don't agree with that. But what is true is that there has been a strain of misinformation and lies that have been fed to the American people about the outcome of elections. And elections have never been free and fair in this country. The Democratic Party have been peddling this Russiagate business since 2016. Blaming the election of Donald Trump on Russia running some ads on Facebook, (laughs) you know, that supposedly influenced people to either not vote or change their vote to vote for Trump and not Hillary Clinton. And I don't see how that is any less of a big lie than what Donald Trump has been telling people. It's just another big lie coming from a different party. Well, I've been joined by Jacqueline Lukeman, co-editor of Lukeman Nation on Facebook Live and on YouTube and co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Sputnik Radio. Thank you for joining me today, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. Mastered economics cause you took yourself from squalor Slave. Mastered academics cause your grace said you were scholar Slave. Mastered Instagram cause you can instigate a follow Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Hey, been it time. I'm on mine. I be minding mine. Every time on my grind, I'm just trying to shine. Make a dollar government. They want a dozen dime. The pity kind might kill you cause they see you shine I done had to have a talk with myself any time Am I a hypocrite cause I know I did plenty crime I get broke too many times, I might slang some pines You believe corporations running marijuana And your country in ran by a casino on a Pedophile sponsor all these and I told you once before that you should kill your master. Now that's the line that's probably gonna get my ass up. Master of these politics, you swear that you got options. Slave. Master of opinion, cause you vote with the white collar. Slave. The 13th Amendment says that slavery's abolished. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum.
And for this segment, I'm joined by economist, author, and Professor Richard Wolf, founder of the organization Democracy at Work and host of the popular show Economic Update. His most recent book is The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you, Esther. I'm glad to be here. Well, last month we discussed the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package. But debates over the size of the package don't seem to connect to a lot of the realities around us in the D.C. area and where you are in New York or just even around the country. So this week, I wanted to take our discussion away from the White House and Capitol Hill and look at the increasing number of like empty storefronts, retail spaces around us, some of which are boarded up around me in D.C. and in neighboring part of Maryland. So I wanted you to talk about the larger implications and connections of what we're seeing on the street. I did see one article in the Washington Post from last November uh, saying that if U.S. banks absorb big losses on what is a $2 trillion investment in commercial real estate, the entire economy will suffer. And then I saw another article was in the New York Times about a very large, fancy complex in New York City called the Hudson Yards that is basically in big trouble with lots of fancy condominiums. And they even had to uh, restrict access to this kind of climbing sculpture because two people had like jumped from it and committed suicide. So I wanted you to just talk about what's happening like around us. And the larger implications of it, I should say. Right. I'd be glad to. Uh, And let me add to your observation. I live uh, in the heart of New York City in Manhattan, a couple of blocks from Union Square, for those who may be familiar with it. And I live on a particular avenue, 6th Avenue. And when I moved here uh, 17 years ago, there was no empty store on 6th Avenue. It's a major uh, street in New York City. And now I would say one out of three stores uh, for many, many blocks near where I live is empty. Many of them have been empty for years. That is before COVID hit. Uh, It's gotten much worse since COVID hit. But we're talking about an economic catastrophe that is the kind of catastrophe that you don't need a statistics book to see. You just need to be awake uh, and walking down the street and it impresses itself on you. Let me get at answering your question this way. There is a kind of tsunami, economic tsunami building all around us. And like the tsunami that happens in the water, in the ocean, your best chance to survive it begins by not pretending it isn't there, not pretending that the signs of its impending crash uh, aren't all around us. And let me give you a couple of examples. For at least 10 months now, a growing number of families cannot pay their rent. That is, they do not earn enough money in the various jobs family members have or can still hold on to to be able to feed themselves and clothe themselves and pay the rent, which for many of them is somewhere between a third and a half of their income. So they haven't been paying their rent. That's very bad. We're talking about millions of families not paying rent to landlords. The landlords, since they're not getting paid their rent, are having a harder and harder time 
paying their taxes to the local government for the buildings they have, paying the banks from whom they borrowed and, and where mortgages are involved for the buildings that these landlords uh, own. Uh, the banks, in turn, are not getting their payments back, and that is beginning to undermine their economic viability. And then we have to add to this building tsunami the fact that over the last 10 months, likewise, a growing number of commercial establishments, restaurants, clothing stores, nail spas, health centers, department stores, everything we all know about, those are not open. Those are not collecting income. Or they are working on a a small share of what they used to do in the way of business. So they have economized, as they have to, by not paying the rent to their landlords for their commercial spaces. This is not a sustainable arrangement. And we should be clear that the government of this country has not faced this situation. The best we can get so far is what's called a moratorium. This is a very weird solution. It's really no solution at all. Because what it means is the landlord accumulates the debt you have by not paying your rent. The landlord is legally allowed to add to the rent you didn't pay an interest charge for all the time that you didn't pay it. And on top of it is legally allowed to apply a penalty to you for the rent you didn't pay. So as the time passes, as I'm speaking to you now, the burden, the debt burden is growing on people who can't possibly pay it. That is, their financial situation is not getting better. Their ability to handle this kind of debt which is, let me remind you, not just the rent that they haven't paid, but the interest and penalties accumulating on it, what are you going to do? This is the kind of thing that becomes so big at a certain point that even the conversation about fixing it becomes irrelevant because you're up against a system breakdown. I see that all around me. And even that I could live with if it weren't added to by the following, which is more of a psychological phenomena than an economic one. It's called, the word is called denial. It's when a problem is so scary for us as human beings that instead of coping with it, instead of developing a strategy to solve it, we kind of go into a weird space where we pretend it isn't there. It reminds me of a little child of two or three years of age confronted by a scary dog and not understanding how the world works yet. The little child thinks that if it just covers its eyes with its hands, then the, being unable to see the dog will magically make the dog disappear. And then when you get a little older, you learn that it doesn't work like that. We seem to have reverted to a kind of childish notion 
that we can simply deny the depth of the situation we're in and it will go away. A little bit like former President Trump uh, told us that we shouldn't worry about COVID because uh, it will go away if we just don't get overexcited about it. That was, as we now know, the worst possible advice in the face of COVID. But we are in fact doing that as we look at the few things that seem to be okay, like Wall Street, without recognizing the kinds of things I just talked about, which are the harsh reality uh, on the ground. Well, there's a lot of news, I think, that came out of the confirmation hearing for Neera Tandon. She is a longtime head of the Center for American Progress, which raked in all kinds of donations from big corporations and foreign governments. So there was that issue. But I was really struck by some of the questioning of her, which showed that particularly the Republicans had some of the same playbook about the value of people getting unemployment. I think it might have been a Toomey of Pennsylvania who asked her, uh, is it possible that that uh, people getting unemployment that is more than what they would have made at their jobs is discouraging people from 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 working, <laughs> from taking jobs? And the question is, do you think if a person can make more money by not working than they can make by working, does that affect their incentive to go back to work? And to some credit to her, she did say, well, she thinks that fear of going back to an unsafe workplace is is more the deterrent for people than the small unemployment that they're getting. But um, I just I just saw that as just typical that a lot of the debate happening on Capitol Hill is not really connected in any real way to the misery that people are experiencing. And so I wanted to add to what you were talking about in terms of rent, I want to add utilities. So the Washington Post said that as of December 31st, Americans owed their gas and electric utilities an estimated $32 billion. And that, and I think the same article said that in just a few nearby counties in Maryland, uh, Pepco, the regional utility, has cut off hundreds of homes from electricity. And this is in the middle of the winter, right? And there's no moratorium or ban on utility cutoffs. So Duke University researchers found that uh, banning disconnections nationwide could have reduced coronavirus infections by more than almost 9% and deaths by almost 14%. So... If, if people losing their their utilities, you know, don't allow people to practice safe hygiene and social distancing that they need to do in their homes. And so a lot of people, rather than be homeless, they're moving in with friends or family. And then that's another crowding situation. So I just wanted to just kind of add that to the whole thing about rent and like people having a home and a safe home to live in. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're seeing, uh, and I'd like to comment on the uh, politician from Pennsylvania asking uh, that question, because it's very, as you rightly point out, it reveals a lot. Think of what the question implies. The worker in this country is so poorly paid for his or her work 
that it's possible under some circumstances for a few of them to actually do better getting unemployment compensation than what they were getting for work. What that ought to mean is a wake-up call to the awfully low payment that is given to workers for their labor. You know, an effective economic system, one that would get applause and appreciation, is an economic system that solves the basic problems people have. It gives a working person enough money for his or her labor five days a week from nine to five or whatever it is they do to be able to feed themselves and their family, to clothe themselves, to shelter themselves, to have an opportunity for the kids to get an education. We all know what the so-called American dream is about. And if you have a person working at 40 hours a week, the system has to pay them or else it's a failed system. It is not a solution to blame the victim of a system that doesn't work adequately. We know what an economic system has to do. Long before COVID hit, the statistics showed us that an absurd number of people were spending more than half their income on rent or on housing one way or another. We know from countless studies you cannot live a decent life if more than half of your income, really it's more than a third, goes for your housing. It puts you in a squeeze for the other basic, and I'm not talking luxurious, basic components of a decent life. The wake-up call that that politician, I'm trying to be polite here, uh, from Pennsylvania should have inferred from the testimony and from the evidence he saw was that the wage levels in this country are inadequate. And to drive it home on another point that's being debated right now, we have a minimum wage, a federal minimum wage in this country of $7.25 an hour. That is either the lowest or one of the two or three lowest levels of uh, minimum wage in the industrialized world. That's a shame in a country of any kind, but in a country that prides itself on being one of the richest it is outrageous. Hmm. You know, Great Britain, which we are like in many ways, the minimum wage in Great Britain right now is $11.95, uh, the equivalent in British pounds. Not seven and a quarter, eleven ninety-five. I mean, that's not even close. What the possible excuse is there. It's the wage level of this country that is the problem. If you paid people properly, and by the way, $15 an hour only in 2025, you're not getting close to dealing with the fundamental inequality of this society, which I might mention a majority of Americans oppose. They want less inequality. But even take the, let's get it to 15 that's at least something uh, by 2025. But the irony is that's being put on the back burner. That's being questioned now. That shows me that the people who make the decisions at the top of this society are basically driven by the business community. That politician from Pennsylvania, you know what horrifies him? 
that he that if we give unemployed people more money than we pay them for a job, they won't be in such a hurry to go back to that underpaid job. And he's right. <laughs> and what he wants is he wants to take away from those underpaid people any temptation to do better in their life. Right. It's a bizarre thing for him to be wanting. Now that you mentioned the minimum wage, because that is also on the front burner as part of this Biden package. And there is debate. There is debate not only about how quickly it can be implemented, but also uh, in the same hearing I listened to, Lindsey Graham wanted to debate about whether that hurts small businesses. Have you ever run a restaurant? I have not run a restaurant. Well, you need to go talk to people who have, because I think they'll give you some facts. I I would say respectfully, Senator, we should also talk to the waiters and waitresses. Yeah, I think they want their jobs. (laughs) I think that the, the, the tip, doing away with the tip wage is probably bad for them. The Heritage Foundation had a big forum this week, basically parading small business owners saying how a $15 an hour wage would hurt them. And it just occurs to you that that means that the economy and businesses are built on the fact that they can exploit people, that they can pay so little. And it's just everything is out of balance if with that small wage you cannot survive. I would love to comment on that because uh, what Lindsey Graham there doing is again one of the more despicable things and boy does he have a long list of despicable things he's done in his life what he's doing there is part of a game it really has to be understood as a game what you want if you're a big business person who buys politicians uh, like Lindsey Graham uh, every day is you want the uh, minimum wage people to be set against little businesses. Let us have a conversation in which which of them get screwed and you take your preference, you, you side up, uh, line up on one side or the other. Either the little business survives and how does it do it? By paying too little or we help the worker, but then, of course, we threaten or damage the small business as if it's an either-or. And meanwhile, the big businesses are laughing because they don't care. They don't care whether the worker gets paid a little more and the little business goes down the tube, or the little business survives and the worker lives on a $7.25. It is outrageous. I'm an economist. Let me tell you how in two seconds this problem is solved. Number one, we say that human beings are not allowed to be ripped off. That was the idea of a minimum wage when it was passed by the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. That's the first time a minimum wage existed. It was designed to make sure that people are not paid so little for their work that they can't live a decent life. So either we're a society that pays people decently or we're not. And if you want to do that, you have to raise the minimum wage. Now let's turn to the small businesses, and they're going to be some, who can't afford to pay more than that seven twenty-five. Here's the solution. Give them the ability to pay more. And here's how you do it. You give them a tax break. You give them a subsidy. 
you give them a certain cut of the government orders for goods and services. And you know why I come up with that? Because we already do that for big businesses. Why in the world don't we do it for small businesses? I can also give you examples of other countries that have been doing this for many decades. There's no mystery. There's nothing complicated about it. What we're seeing now is not that there isn't a solution. There is. But there has to be the political will to go after the wealth we have available to solve this problem. But we're not risking tapping it. And that's a political failure of nerve, not a technical economics problem. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't mention. Yeah, we do have statistics about how rich people have gotten even richer during the... The money is there. It was there in the 30s. Roosevelt, given the support from below, went and got it. We don't have a leader yet who's willing to go and get it. But if we did, we could solve our problems. And if we don't, those problems are going to get worse. All right. Well, I've been speaking to Professor Richard Wolf, economist, author, and founder of the organization Democracy at Work and host of the popular show Economic Update. His most recent book is The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Thank you again, Rick. Okay, good to talk to you. Take care. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Lydia Curtis for their contributions to the show. And thanks to my guests, Professor Richard Wolf and Jacqueline Lukman. At onthegroundshow.org, you can listen to all of our current and past shows, contact us, and support us. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show to support us and also like us on Facebook and Twitter at on the ground show. Our new podcast is on the ground with Esther Averam and you can subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included can't hurry love by the Supremes just by run the jewels and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material, or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is on the ground show dot org. Thank you.